Hello, my name is Rita Peters, and I serve as Senior Vice President for Legislative Affairs with Convention of States Action. Today, I'm here with Professor Robert Nadelson, who is going to talk to us about some of the recent decisions coming out of the Supreme Court. Is the makeup of the Supreme Court today really conservative, as the media keeps telling us? or is it something else? By way of introduction, Professor Nadelson is a law professor and the author of the original Constitution. He has written numerous scholarly articles and he's been cited by the U.S. Supreme Court at least 12 times. His work is also regularly cited by parties in their writing of briefs to the Supreme Court. He has been a constitutional law professor, a candidate for governor in Montana, and a senior fellow at three different think tanks. Nadelson today is head of the Article 5 Information Center at the Independence Institute and a senior advisor with Convention of States. Professor Nadelson, thanks for being with us today. It's a pleasure being with you, Rita, especially in this beautiful area of Colorado in the mountains. It is a lovely setting for sure. Well, this was the first Supreme Court term with three President Trump appointees sitting on the Supreme Court. That's Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett. So the mainstream media keeps insisting that we now have this great conservative majority on the Supreme Court. And I know a lot of people were really excited to see this happen, these three Trump appointees on the court. So would you say that this really is a conservative majority on the court? And if so, how do we explain what we see happening? Well, Rita, you remember last year, the, the uh media were telling us that there was a 5-4 conservative majority, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then what happened at the end of the term was a lot of liberal decisions. Yes. And so they had to start scramble, scrambling to explain why their narrative was still true, even though there were so many, <laughs> right. Well, this year, exactly the same thing happened, except the numbers are 6-3 instead of 5-4. Mm -hmm. um, Many of the liberal media outlet have come up, outlets have come up with all kinds of reasons to explain why the court actually issued so many, um, so many liberal decisions. But my favorite one, I think, is the explanation of the New York Times. According to the New York Times, the conservative majority is in flux. <laughs> in fact, there is no conservative majority on the court as the decisions this term show. Yeah. Well, one interesting point that you make in a recent Epic Times article, because you do write regularly for the Epic Times, is that any decisions we see come out of the court that are more originalist in, in philosophy, in nature, seem to be sort of short-lived and easily overturned, while the many decisions we see from the court that expand government power, it seems like we're just stuck with them forever and they never go away. What do you, what do you make of that? How do you explain that phenomenon? Well, that certainly happened this term, but maybe we should, you know, the two of us are lawyers, so we use words like originalists. Oh. So, so, so <laughs> yes. let's, let, let's, let's unpack this a bit. Sure. Um, 
You can classify three of the justices as liberal activists. These are justices Breyer, Kagan, and Sotomayor. They kind of stretch the Constitution sometimes to reach liberal results. Yes. You can classify one justice as an originalist. That's Justice Thomas. Mm -hmm. And by an originalist, someone who, we mean someone who really is a traditional judge in the Anglo-American tradition going back at least 500 years, mm -hmm. which is that you interpret documents according to the understanding of the people who entered into the document. You, you try to further their purposes. Right. The other five are all somewhere in between. And there really isn't a conservative activist on the court in the way that there are liberal activists on the court. Mm. The last conservative activist was really Justice James McReynolds, who retired before either you or I were born in 1941, right? Yes. And so the whole, the whole discussion of it being, any of the judges being, quote, conservative is fictional. Mm -hmm. So for example, Justice Thomas is often described as a conservative judge, but when a decision came up as to whether the federal government could legalize, could, excuse me, could ban marijuana uh, for purely local control, his answer was no, even though that's a liberal decision. Yeah. Okay, so, the, um, uh, so the, your, your question has to do with those, um, those decisions, originalist or not, that are being trumpeted as conservative victories. Mm -hmm. And yes, they tend to be a little flimsy mm -hmm. for reasons that I could explain, as opposed to some of the liberal triumphs, which look a lot more permanent. Mm -hmm. It sounds a little bit like what you're saying is that conservatives tend to be a little bit more disappointed, maybe because originalist justices who interpret the Constitution as it was written and stick to that are just doing what the law requires them to do. <laughs> Whereas it seems like judges who have a different philosophy are happy to creatively interpret the Constitution and create decisions that they like. Is that? Yeah, I think, that, I think that's true. I mean, you look at people like Justice Kavanaugh, and Justice Roberts. They're what we call judicial minimalists. Mm -hmm. They're going to try to interpret the, they're, they're going to try to decide cases on the narrowest ground possible. And that will result in cases that the media trumpet as conservative victories really being very, um, very ephemeral, very fragile. And let's just give an example. Uh, the case is called Fulton versus City of Philadelphia. The City of Philadelphia had a rule which said that if you want to place children in foster care in the city of Philadelphia, you must agree to, to place them in transgender and same-sex homes as well as traditional homes. Well, Catholic charities have been involved in placing foster kids for like centuries, okay? And this, this rule had the effect of denying Catholic charities the ability to place kids in foster homes in Philadelphia. So the, a court, and it was unanimous court, said that Philadelphia had violated the free exercise of religion rights of Catholic charities. Mm -hmm. But as Justice Alito pointed out in his concurrence, the, the decision was so narrow that all Catholic charity, all, excuse me, all the, Phil, the city of Philadelphia has to do is to change one small part of their form that they never use anyway, and they can go on discriminating against, uh, against Catholic charities on the ground of religion. Yeah. So, and I'd, I'd be surprised as we sit here today, 
uh, I'd be surprised if Philadelphia hasn't already dropped that provision in the form so they can go on doing what they like. Yeah. So th that's, a, that's a good example of how the quote, quote, conservative victories, although I would think of religious freedom as far more cons than conservative, <laughs> were really flimsy or ephemeral. And there are other examples yeah. as well. Well, this has to all be really disappointing for all of those conservatives out there, many of whom, and I happen to know people in this camp who voted for President Trump, you know, sort of holding their nose because they didn't really like President Trump, but they felt like the Supreme Court is hanging in the balance here, and they trusted that if President Trump was in office, he would appoint great justices to the Supreme Court, which would then start to fix the, the mess that we see. And part of that mess is federal overreach and the overbearing federal government and you know the erosion of basic civil liberties for Americans. So it's such a disappointing thing to see now that that isn't happening. What what would you say to people who are disappointed and you know what do we have to do or to hope for in order to set things up? I think it's important to lay groundwork for that question. Let's look at another opinion, mm -hmm. the Obamacare case. Uh -huh. For the third time, the Supreme Court refused to strike down Obamacare, even though the way events have unfolded, Obamacare is now unconstitutional under the court's own previously announced standards, mm -hmm. but it was struck down. Excuse me, but it was sustained because a standing was denied to the states that, um, that, uh, that sued to overturn it. Mm -hmm. The decision was seven to two. Two of the three Trump appointments voted to keep Obamacare. Yeah. One of the, yes. One of, the, one of the, the comments that was made in the dissent was, you know, this court has gone out of its way to grant standing to liberal states proposing or furthering liberal causes. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, here, here's a great example. Just a few years ago, Massachusetts sued to try to force the Environmental Protection Agency to regulate carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas. Mm -hmm. And here was the basis of the lawsuit. The lawsuit was, if the EPA doesn't regulate CO2 as a greenhouse gas, then that might cause more global warming. And if there's more global warming, that might cause the seas to rise. And if it causes the seas to rise, then the size of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts will be diminished. <laughs> they actually got standing on this basis. Wow. And yet, 18 states spending billions of dollars a year to comply with an unconstitutional law, they don't have standing, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So now we come to your to your, to your uh, question, which is, what do we do? We've got two of the three of uh, President Trump's appointments voting to maintain this mm -hmm. unconstitutional law. And the answer is, it's clear that the 50-year project of electing presidents and senators who will put, quote, conservative judges on the court mm -hmm. has failed. Yes. It doesn't mean we should start voting for the bad guys, mm -hmm. but it does mean what we have to do is we have to do other things. Mm -hmm. And a big part of that is convention of states. Yeah. Um, you see, a problem in Washington, D.C. is you've got a lot of good people there. You really do. Mm -hmm. But they're locked into a bad system. And that's true of some members of, the, members of the Supreme Court, too. I don't think there's, 
You know, we have in the past had justices on the Supreme Court who were bad people. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's true of any of the justices. Mm -hmm. But they're, lo they're locked into a system of incentives and a, a political system which, re which almost requires them to continue to apply the liberal jurisprudence that uh, liberal courts changed the Constitution with back in the 20th century. Um, and so that means we have to change the system. There's no, there's no uh, alternative to that. And that means we need, perhaps by constitutional amendment, to overturn some Supreme Court decisions, mm -hmm. as we have done three times in the past. Mm -hmm. And it also means that we need to adopt other structural reforms, mm -hmm. like maybe it's time to impose term limits on the court and to make other changes to the system. There's no, there's no escape from this conclusion, Rita. It, it's, it's not a matter of, well, I think this would be better than the other. We have now clear historical experiment over 50 years that simply relying upon the electoral process is not going to change the Supreme Court. If we wanted to just do a thought experiment for a moment, even if we had nine quote-unquote conservative Supreme Court You mean justices, originalist Supreme Court? Originalist yes. Supreme Court yeah. justices sitting on the court, it, it wouldn't be such an easy thing, if it were even possible, to fix the structural damage that has been done to the Constitution over so many years, because as we've seen, you know, it's not just a matter of the Supreme Court snapping its fingers and fixing things. There is this lengthy, time-consuming, difficult process that it takes for a court to even, for a case to even work its way up to the court, and it involves, you know, these legal procedural hurdles like standing mm -hmm. and all of this. So it's, I think it's important important for people to understand that the idea that if we get enough of the right people, whether it's in Congress or on the Supreme Court, that everything will be fixed is just not going to happen. As you pointed out, we now have history showing that. And Rita, I'd like to add to that. I think that's right. You mentioned that just the sheer length of time mm -hmm. taken to get these cases before the court. But there's more, even more to it than that. An originalist justice, that is to say, a traditional Anglo-American judge, is not going to be you know, gangbusters on reversing all precedents. Yes. I mean, they're going to be very aware that there are, uh, that people have relied on these precedents. They're going, to be, they're going to proceed very, very cautiously. They're going to use their equitable powers to create what are called structural injunctions to kind of try to ease in uh, the changes. Um, and I will tell you this, if they come up with opinions or decisions that liberals don't like, they're not going to, the liberals aren't going to hesitate to pass constitutional <laughs> amendments. They're not going to be saying, oh, gee, we shouldn't use the, the convention process because it might run away. Mm -hmm. They're going to hop in with both feet and they're going to manipulate and, and, and mutilate the convention process to serve their purposes to overrule these, these uh, originalist Supreme Court justices. Yes. So that actually adds a certain time urgency here because we want to make sure that any convention of states is one that's done in conformance with the Constitution, that is done right, at a time what, when, the, when the Supreme Court, while not wholly satisfactory, is at least not crazy yes. liberal. Yes. And we'd better do it first. Yeah. Because if we ever were to 
say, win an election so decisively that we started adopting a conservative agenda, the liberals are going to have absolutely no hesitation about using every one of their tools to reverse everything we try to do. So there is, it's not just a lesson here, mm -hmm. there is, as I said, some time urgency as, as well. Yes. And then, of course, we have this whole concept of stare decisis that plays into this, that it's a court will not just overturn a previous decision just because the court thinks the decision was wrongly decided. So I think that's something that um, maybe is you know, difficult for non-attorneys to really understand why that would be you know, frankly, it's difficult for me to understand why can't they well, just overturn a bad yeah. decision? So would you say a few words about stare decisis? You know, Justice Scalia used to make this point. Uh, he was what we sometimes call a faint-hearted originalist. Mm -hmm. And the reason he was is exactly what you say, stare decisis. Mm -hmm. Stare decisis or is a Latin term, or to us Latin purists, stare decisis, which means to stand on the decisions. It is a traditional principle of Anglo-American judging going back hundreds of years. And the, the principle applies a little less strongly in constitutional cases, but it definitely applies in constitutional cases. Mm -hmm. And what it means is that if there is a precedent out there, even if it's a bad precedent, uh, you give the benefit of the doubt to that precedent and you're cautious about overruling it. So now you've got effectively three precedents upholding Obamacare, for example. And so even a, a court of nine originalists is going to be cautious about overruling that decision. They're going to be essentially saying, if you want Obamacare gone, your avenue is a constitutional amendment, mm -hmm. not a Supreme Court case. Mm -hmm. um, that's one of the things that frustrates people about Chief Justice Roberts so much is that he's a real strong, starry decisive guy. Uh -huh. And he wants to move as smoothly, as slowly as possible. Even though on some cases, he has proven himself a friend to constitutional rights, notably property rights. Mm -hmm. But he wants to be very cautious because that's his view of judging. Mm -hmm. So I think, Professor Nadelson, that really brings us right up to the whole Article 5 issue because we see that to put one's hope in the Supreme Court, you know, conservative or originalist as one might think its majority to be, is really a false hope in terms of its ability to stop federal overreach and put the federal government back in its constitutional box or limit it back to its original enumerated powers. So you're, you're a senior advisor with Convention of States in our effort to trigger an Article 5 convention to propose amendments on three topics, imposing fiscal restraint on the federal government, limiting federal power and jurisdiction, and setting term limits for federal officials. So talk to us about um, how you think amendments on any one or more of those topics m would be the effective solution to the problem we have today. Well, Rita, as you know, the exact amendments are drafted by the convention. Yes. Um, Sometimes people have tried to misuse the Article 5 process by having the state legislatures dictate specific amendments to the convention. You can't do that. I mean, yeah. the court still said. So then it therefore follows that the, that the structure of those amendments mm -hmm. is going to depend a little bit on the, on the political configuration mm 
-hmm. of, of the convention and also on the ambition of the convention. Let's take a look at one example. A lot of people believe that we need a balanced budget amendment. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, why is that a good idea? Well, it's a good idea so that we don't keep bankrupting the country. It's also a good idea because it forces Congress to prioritize, and a lot of the politically correct garbage that I saw in academia wouldn't get funded if they actually had to fund real things like national defense and social security. So, so, um, so yeah, it's a good idea. But the next question becomes, well, how do you enforce it? Mm -hmm. And in the case of a balanced budget amendment, it's difficult. You don't want the courts rewriting the federal budget. Right. And so it would make sense to say that any additional deficit spending have to be approved by, say, two-thirds of Congress or maybe by the state legislatures, which I like better. Mm -hmm. So the, once, you've got a, once the constitutional amendment is proposed and then ratified by the states, it is a powerful political statement. It tells the courts, we, the American people, want, in this case, fiscal responsibility, mm -hmm. and we mean it. Yeah. And the history has been, as you know, Rita, that when a constitutional amendment is passed, the courts actually give it more respect yes. than the original Constitution. Yes. I mean, uh, the, the court exceeded its power back in 1793 by, by ruling on a case that expanded its own jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. The American people responded like that, right? Absolutely. And overturned it, passed the 11th Amendment, and they still respect the 11th yes. Amendment almost, almost entirely. Mm -hmm. uh, one questionable case this term. But, but, um, but my points here are several. Number one, the exact structure of the amendment is going to determine, de uh, be determined by the political nature of the convention. Right. Number two, the convention is going to have different ways of enforcing these amendments. But number three, once they're passed, it is a powerful message yeah. that we want you guys in Washington, D.C. back on the constitutional track. Yes. And as you point out, amendments have been effective. Yes. And particularly, you know, you look at more recent amendments that are very clearly worded in modern language. There, no one can get away with defying constitutional amendments. Well, I, as a I, let me give you two great examples. One is the 22nd Amendment, mm -hmm. right? That limits each president to two terms. Yep. Nobody's tried to break that. It's, nope. Nobody can claim it didn't make a difference. It continues to make a difference. Every once in a while, somebody says, well, wouldn't it be great if, uh, if uh, we could elect President Reagan or President Obama for a third term? And it, the, <laughs> you can't do it. It's right. over. The problem is solved. Yes. The other thing is, you are here talking to, to, get, to me today because you are not just a citizen, but you are a voter. Yeah. Why are you a voter? You're a voter because of the 19th Amendment, which said that no state could deny women the right to vote. You tell me that didn't make a difference? It made an enormous <laughs> difference, of course. Not just for you, but for the country. So um, yeah, these amendments really do, they're, they're about the strongest punch that the American people can throw yeah. um, without actually getting into the streets with violence. And, uh, and, and we, we, we really need to use this process rather than trying other things that haven't worked or, or that would be damaging. Yeah, it seems to me that the American people for so long, at least the ones who really care about constitutionally limited government, have looked everywhere else for the solution. Yes. You know, we've looked to Congress and tried so hard to send 
good people there. We've looked to the president. We have most recently looked to the courts. And in every case, we've been disappointed by the results. So do you think it's safe to say that it's a little bit crazy that we haven't yet really looked to this Article 5 convention process? Well, the founders would have been very disappointed. But, you know, I'm reminded of the Winston Churchill quote. Remember, Winston Churchill was half American. Mm -hmm. He said the American people will always do the right thing but only when there's absolutely no other alternative. <laughs> Are we there? I think we're there. <laughs> Professor Nadelson, as people today sort of scratch our heads and wring our hands about the decisions that have come out of the court lately that have been so disappointing and we see them as opportunities missed, we know though that they didn't come out of thin air. So I wonder if you could share with us what you see as the historical and sort of legal underpinnings that have led to these, what I would say are disappointing decisions. Well, you know, the Supreme Court was envisioned by the founders as an entity that would make decisions something like the British courts did. You know, the founders didn't like the British Parliament, and they didn't like the British King, but they greatly admired the British courts. And when the British courts interpreted statutes or other acts of Parliament or charters, they applied the method that we call originalism. That is to say, they asked what did the parties to this instrument want this instrument to accomplish, what was their understanding of that instrument, and then they, the, the, and then they applied it. Mm -hmm. And so that was the way the courts were set up in the Constitution. In the 20th century, however, so-called progressive justices began to come onto the court and they had very different ideas. Their idea was using the law to advance what they saw as policy ends or social good. We learn about this in law school, don't we? And by 1940, these progressives dominated the court. And so for a period of about 50 years, from about 1940 to 1990, you've got this era of strongly progressive majorities on the court, not just progressive, but very activist. Mm. And they built up a body of precedent. And that precedent basically did three things. Number one, the court stopped putting limits on the federal government's enumerated powers. Mm. You know, for example, the, the, the Constitution says that the federal government has the power to regulate commerce among the states. So this was extended to include manufacturing, land use, agriculture, crime, and so forth. Yeah. So that's the first theme of this era. We stop policing, stop limiting uh, the federal government's exercise of its powers. Mm -hmm. second, th second theme was, let's dump on the states. Mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> let's use, mostly through, the, through misuse of the 14th Amendment's due process clause, Let's start telling the states, you can't do this, you can't do that. Mm -hmm. so they started rewriting criminal law. They issued Roe versus Wade, nationalizing uh, abortion on demand. They uh, started getting into the extent to which the states could deal with religion, and on and on. Mm -hmm. So that's the second theme, mm -hmm. dumping on the states. And the third theme is what the late, great New York Democratic Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan mm -hmm. called defining deviancy down, yeah. making uh, mainstreaming and even supporting mm -hmm. conduct that had previously been seen as, um, as socially unacceptable. Mm -hmm. So you have all of these uh, precedents that make it easier for criminal defendants to be sprung. 
You have these precedents protecting the, quote, right to abortion, uh, precedents uh, not just permitting but actually privileging behavior that would have been seen as sexually impermissible in, in, in prior years. So those are the three, uh, the three themes of this, of, of this jurisprudence from this very progressive era. We don't limit the federal government, we dump on the states, and we define deviancy down. Mm. And what is, depress what is depressing about this latest Supreme Court term is that you see the Supreme Court doing all mm. three of those things. It refused on several occasions to limit the power of the federal government. The Obamacare is case, care case is only one example. It issued a number of decisions that um, second-guessed state or local decision-making. And it continued to do things like, well, for example, it declared, it, it, it upheld a lower court decision that declared as a matter of constitutional law that a biological girl could use the boys' room in her in, in, in her school. That's constitutional law, excuse me. <laughs> I, I missed that part. Right, you missed that part. That wasn't, that wasn't well, um, yeah. So, um, uh, so all three of these themes run through the uh, court term. And I will say, finally, this is hard for people to grasp sometimes, mm -hmm. but even some of the victories that are celebrated as, quote, conservative victories, mm -hmm were built on this liberal jurisprudence and reaffirmed this jurisprudence. Yes. So for example, the case which upheld donor privacy, mm -hmm. great result, mm -hmm. but it was all based on decisions from the left-wing courts of the 50s and 60s and 70s. Yes. The very jurisprudence that we elected Republican presidents and conservative senators and, and, and presidents to try to to, to get away from. And that's a good reminder for us that we always need to be concerned not only about the specific results from a case, right. but about the legal that's reasoning right. and the legal principles that were used to produce that result because we are going to see the fruits, you know, bitter that's or right. sweet as they and may be. And that's why in that case I just mentioned, the, the American Civil Liberties Union, left-wing organization, also favored that decision. It wasn't yeah. just a, quote, conservative victory. The ACLU and several liberal organizations, because they know that the ACLU and several liberal organizations piled on because they know that they can use that yes. to advance their purposes. Yeah. Thank you so much, Professor Nadelson, for being with us today. Check out more content at conventionofstates.com slash pod. Thank you for listening.